welcome and thank you for being here on Thanksgiving Sunday. It's generally one of my Sundays to preach, so I'm glad you're here. I do, I do love to do it. If you don't know who I am, I'm not Jason Lancaster. My name's John Bechtel. I'm the associate pastor here, and it is a joy to bring God's Word to you today. I thought long and hard about a captivating, spellbinding introduction to this sermon, and I don't have one, but that's okay. We're going to be focusing on thankfulness this morning. We're going to do it for a few reasons. First of all, it's a good time of year to do it. It's also something that we all kind of understand, we kind of get, but it's also something that if we're honest, it's very hard to define and to explain. But at the end of the day, it's a central theme in our lives as Christians. And if it isn't, it should be. So this is what we're going to do. We're going to talk about thankfulness. We're going to start off a bit academic. We're going to try and define what it is. Then we're going to talk about why it should matter to you. And then we're going to look at Scripture and ask that all-important question, why really should we be thankful? So you with me? Let's dive in. Thankfulness. How do you define thankfulness? Well, I spent, I spent a lot of time thinking this through and, and looked at a lot of people, and actually I just want to say my definition, if you want to put that up on the, uh, up on the screen right now, is I'm indebted a lot to, to Pastor John Piper. Uh, Pastor Piper, I think, does more with emotions than any other pastor I know of. But this is my definition for thankfulness. An affection or emotion that arises in our hearts in response to the goodwill of someone who intentionally does or attempts to do something positive on our behalf. Let that sink in. An affection or emotion that arises in our hearts in response to the goodwill of someone who intentionally does or attempts to do something positive on our behalf. Let me offer three observations about this definition. Observation one, thankfulness is felt. It's an affection or it's an emotion. Thankfulness is not a decision or it's not a commitment that you make. It's something that you feel or you don't. Every Christmas Eve when I was growing up, we got to open one present before the big event the next morning. And inevitably, I would open socks or underwear. And no matter how hard I tried, I couldn't manufacture gratitude. If you're not grateful for the gift, you're not thankful. If you get a gift you don't want, you don't feel gratitude no matter how much you think about it. You can't manufacture thankfulness. Well, the implications here are huge for us. Think about it. Feeling thankful is a great heart check. Really, when we're feeling thankful, we're getting to the heart of our faith. Our faith is not simply based on decisions or commitments to a set of facts. It's based on a relationship. It's based on the ultimate goodwill of God himself, who sent his son to do something positive on our, on our behalf, something that we could never, ever do. Feeling thankful demonstrates the reality of the gospel in our lives. Observation number two, thankfulness emphasizes the giver, not the gifts. Let me say that again. Thankfulness emphasizes the giver and not the gifts. It is generated in our hearts by the goodness of another, 
not the benefits we receive. Remember the definition. Thankfulness is an affectionate emotion that arises in our hearts in response to the good will of someone who intentionally does or attempts to do something positive on our behalf. So thankfulness is never about the gifts. It's never about what we receive. It is an affection or emotion that is about the giver. So, what does that make thanksgiving at its core? Thanksgiving at its core is other-centered. We can't truly be thankful without focus on another. Self-focus, in essence, negates thankfulness. You can't be thankful to yourself. That, that's pride. You can't be thankful for the gift or favor you've received without being thankful for the giver. In fact, that's the opposite of thankfulness. That's ingratitude. Kids, I know you're in here. Christmas is coming. And I know you're all excited. I know in my house the lists have been made and they've been checked more than twice by the kids. You know, when you're done opening your presents, are you going to be thankful? Are you going to be thankful for what you got? It's important, right? But I want you to think about something else this Christmas, kids of all ages. When you think about your gifts, and you're thankful for your gifts alone, do you understand that you're, you're, you're really thinking about yourself? You're focusing on you. What real thankfulness is, is thinking about the goodwill that your, your parents had, that your family had. Think about how much they love you to get you those good things. See, we need to see through the gifts to the giver to really be thankful. And that's something we can apply to all of our lives. So thankfulness here, the implication here is, is, is simple too. Thankfulness helps our focus. Really, it's at the center of our faith for this very reason, because we, we move from self-focus and self-preservation and self-promotion to focus on another. And in so many ways, that's the essence of our faith. And thankfulness is a wonderful way that we can do this. And we get to focus on God himself and the, his goodwill and his good action on our, on our behalf. Observation number three. There are levels to our thankfulness. There are levels to our thankfulness. Pastor Piper offers three factors that influence the intensity of our thankfulness. The first one is the importance of the gift offered to us. The importance of the gift offered to us. A person who is dying of thirst the most important thing that they could ever have is a, is a glass of water. That's the most important gift they could have. The second thing is the sacrifice that costs someone to give the gift. If I have a need in my home, I am much more thankful to somebody who comes from out of state than somebody who comes from across the street, simply because of the cost involved in coming. And then... The third factor influencing our intensity of thankfulness is our own sense of unworthiness to receive the gift or to attain it by ourselves. I'm going to pick on Chipper Flanagan. I don't think he's here this morning. Um, I was very thankful when Chipper and the other interns came. They helped on an office cleanup day. We moved a bunch of stuff and, and cleaned up the office and, and tried to make it a little bit more presentable. But I have to say I was way more grateful when Chipper came into my office and debug my computer. You see, I can move stuff. I can pick stuff up. I can throw stuff away. But I had no way of attaining a faster, more functional computer. I was more thankful for what Chipper did for me in that case. So think about it. 
How does this apply to our Christian life? Nothing can elicit greater levels of thankfulness than what God has done for you through Jesus on our behalf. And nothing is more important than having a right relationship with the righteous king of the universe. And nothing has ever cost more than a perfect God in perfect community for all eternity, turning his wrath and his fury on his perfect son on our behalf. And nothing is more unattainable for us as human beings than trying to earn or merit this right relationship with God. So nothing, nothing should ever elicit more thankfulness in our lives than God's work through Jesus on our behalf. Nothing. The implication here is, another, is good too. Thankfulness is a great idol check. It's a great idol check. Ask yourself this question. Is there anything in your life, is there anyone in your life for whom you are more thankful than Jesus? And whatever your answer is, there's your idol. There's your idol. We tried to define thankfulness. We've made a few observations. Thankfulness shows us where our heart stands before God. It helps us turn our focus from ourselves to others. And it helps to bring light idolatry in our hearts. So you're thankful, right? Well, we defined it, we made some observations, but let me make a couple other points as to why faithfulness matters to you. Why it matters to you. It matters to you first because thankfulness is a command. We see it in Colossians 3, 17. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. And then again in 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 through 18. Rejoice, rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Thankfulness is a requirement for you, folks. It's a requirement for every follower of Jesus. It's a non-negotiable. It's a command. But look, it's also his will. It's God's will. It's his plan and his purpose for how you're to live. It's to be understood cognitively, and it's to be practiced practically. We need to hear and do thankfulness. It's not optional. It's central to God's plan for you and me. But I hope you hear what God is saying here. God wants us to be thankful. Parents in the room, you understand what I'm talking about. When you're truly parenting, what do you want your child? You want your child to obey, not because it makes life easier for you, but you, you want them to obey because it's what's best for them. You have their best interest in mind. You understand what is best for them. And as Christians, we are to do what we're told. One, because it brings honor to God, but two, because it brings benefit to us. You see, thankfulness isn't meant just to be an exercise in blind obedience. It is a wonderful tool in the life of the believer, which leads to a second, and I think a really exciting um, reason that thanks, thankfulness matters to you. Thankfulness is a tool for growth. Do you know that? Thankfulness helps you become like Jesus. First of all, when we're thankful, what are we doing? We're acknowledging that we've received something. And generally, if we receive something, that means that we've had we've need of something. 
And the beautiful thing, when we, we, we receive something, we're grateful for that. We're acknowledging that God is providing for our needs. And at the end of the day, what thankfulness does is it drives us to the fact that we are not God. So when we're thankful, it gives us right perspective and right understanding of who we are before God, that we are needy and that God provides, that he is good. But thankfulness does more than that. It actually helps us fight against sin and circumstances. In Ephesians 5, verses 3 through 5, we read this. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. Let there be no filthiness or foolish talk or crude joking which is out of place. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. Thanksgiving is part of the remedy for impurity and coarseness. This is a great thought. Think about this. I can't have impure thoughts about, about anything when I am thanking God for my wife. I, there's no room. I am thanking God for my wife. Impure thoughts can't get in. And when I am thanking God, thanking God before others, there's no place for coarse jesting in my mouth. It is a great tool to help us fight these things. But there's more. Look at Philippians chapter 4, verse 6. In this famous passage, we see, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Thanksgiving is also part of the antidote for anxiety. You ever think about that? When, we're, when we are thankful, we're not focused on what could be or what might be or what's out there. We're focused on the present reality of who God is and what he has done for us. Instead of fearing what is not real, we see reality, the good gifts we've received from the good giver. So being thankful matters. It matters to us. We're supposed to do it. It's for our own benefit. It helps us think rightly about God and ourselves. It helps us fight sin in our lives and become more like Jesus. I hope you're getting it. Thankfulness is something to pursue. It's clearly something we should seek to cultivate, right? Well, thanks for hanging, me, hanging with me through that bit of an academic um, talk there. We've defined thankfulness. We've discussed why thankfulness matters. But now let's get to the heart of the matter. What should make you thankful? What should make me thankful? It's a command, right? It's for our own good, so we need to be thankful. Well, I want to try something a little bit different this morning. I want us to be driven to thankfulness as we consider ourselves and God of the Bible. And as you already heard read this morning, we're going to finish our sermon at the end of history in the book of Revelation. But we're going to start at the dawn of humanity. And that's, where, that's what we're going to do. We're going to take a whirlwind tour through biblical history. We're going to focus on the developing theme, listen to this, the developing theme of languages in Scripture and use language as a vehicle to consider thankfulness in our own lives. That's what we're going to do. Because as we trace human language and even look at race through Scripture, we're going to catch a better glimpse of who we are and what we have done 
We're going to catch a better glimpse of who God is and what he's done on our behalf. And hopefully you will see exactly why we should live lives of thankfulness. So let's start at the beginning. If you have your Bibles, please turn to Genesis chapter 11. Genesis chapter 11. The flood has just happened. We've just read the genealogies of Moses. And now this story enters the scene. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as the people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for, they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. And they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. What's going on here is, is simple and clear. After the great flood, human beings had developed great technology and even greater confidence in their own abilities, so much so that they lost sight of their need for God. Look at verse 4. Look at this pattern. You see the action? They built a city. And why did they build a city? Look there. In order to not be dispersed over the face of the earth. And this is actually contrary to God's plan. We read in Genesis 1 and we see later in Genesis 9. God commanded his people to go and fill the earth. Why did they do this? What was their desire behind this? I think it's pretty clear. It was security. They were not looking to God to save them. They were not looking to God to make them secure. They were looking to themselves and their own abilities. But it continues. Not only did they want security, look what else they wanted to do. They built a tower with its top in the heavens. And why do they do this? In order to make a name for themselves. So why were they doing that? What were they desiring there? Well, I think it's, it's clear. They want praise. They want glory. They want credit. They want what should go to God alone. They want to reach up in the heavens and achieve God-like status for themselves. Here's what the people were really saying. They're saying, God, we know how to take care of ourselves better than you do. We trust ourselves more than you, and in fact, we believe more about in ourselves than we believe in you. So much so that we're going we're gonna to replace you, and we're going to become like you. In short, we can save ourselves, and we should get the glory. But look what happens next. God wins. Look at verse 5. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children a man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they have all one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and confuse their language, so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from, all over, from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. From there, the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. And look what happens next. It's kind of funny. Okay, we're going to build this tower that's going to reach in the heaven. They built this tower. And then it says, and God looks down. God's still looking down. They didn't achieve it. They didn't make it. And he sees the trouble that humans will create if they unify and they seek to glorify themselves. And what does he do? He intervenes. He confuses their language and 
As they cannot understand one another, I said it before, I'll say it again, God wins. His will is done, and people are dispersed throughout the world. And the city of Babel, which is later linked with Babylon, forever becomes a symbol of humanity's ambition to dethrone and to replace God. But if you know the rest of the story, you know what happens in chapter 12. In chapter 12, we see the call of Abram out of this very region to be a vehicle of blessing to the whole world. And God will not leave the nations to themselves to their own devices. No, over the course of history, what does he do? He he begins providing a way back uh, for his people to come back to him. He called Abraham and made a people for himself out of the nations. He gave them a land to call their own. He taught them how to rightly relate to him and how to come back to him. And then he placed himself in the midst of them in the tabernacle and the temple. And the nations were given a glimpse of who God is and they were given the opportunity to return. But there were still barriers that separated the human race from one another and from God. Which leads us to our next portion of Scripture. We're going to skip forward several thousand years and we're going to go to the book of Acts. Acts chapter 2. Please turn there with me. So with the story of what happened at Babel in the back of your mind, listen, listen to what happens now at Pentecost. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And, divide, and divided as tongues of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now, there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together, and they were bewildered, because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all of these speaking, who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes, Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, and Asia, Phrygia, and Pamphylia, Egypt, and parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others mocking said, They are filled with new wine. It was Pentecost. Pentecost is a harvest festival to mark the 50th day after Passover. But it's also a pilgrimage festival where people come from all over the world to bring gifts and offerings to their God, Yahweh. So the dispersed people from all over the world were now present on this day. Those that are dispersed at Babel have now come back together. But it also marks another Um, date. It marked about 50 days since Jesus Christ had been crucified on the cross. And three days later, he arose from the dead. And he was seen by many and went up to heaven. But he left. But before he left, he promised his followers he would not leave them orphans, but that he would send a helper. 
And what did Jesus accomplish during those days? He paid for the debt of the sins of the world by dying on the cross. He took the wrath and the fury from Father that was meant for us. And he rose again victorious, having defeated death and Satan. And now this helper, this counselor, the Holy Spirit arrives on the scene. And his arrival signals a breaking of the barriers that separated the human race since Babel. Now think about it. At Babel, humanity tried to save themselves and take God's glory. And their tongues were confused and they were scattered. At Pentecost, God provided salvation. And now through the power of the Holy Spirit, those who were saved were speaking in various tongues. Look at the verse of, uh, uh, end of verse 11. I love this. The people of the nations, what were they saying? We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. Think about it. The mighty works of man and their proclamation were what caused these tongues to exist. And now people are, the, the world has come back together for this event. And they are hearing in their own tongues, in their own language, the mighty works of God. These languages risen again out of this human desire sought to, when they sought to save themselves and bring glory to themselves. They were now miraculously, miraculously proclaiming the salvation that came from God. God had provided salvation. And now they were being, he was being glorified in all languages. But what else did this miraculous event cause? Now the people didn't have to come to a central place to worship. They could worship God to the ends of the earth in their own languages. More than that, people no longer needed to strive to build up into heaven and find their own, to find their own security and significance. This is beautiful. God had come down and provided security and significance for humanity in the person of Jesus. Now he sent his helper, the Spirit, to guide and protect us. See, I, see the pattern here. Humans strive for their own security and glory. They're met with division and separation and isolation. God reaches down. He provides security. They're unified around him. And what does he do next? He sends them out, and he gets the glory in the nations. God wins. He wins in our past. He is winning in our present. And he wins in our future. On a sobering note, notice how this passage ends. Some still didn't believe. They refused to give God the glory as due. And that sadly continues to this day. But the day is coming, the day is coming when everyone will give God his due. Paul knew this and he foretold of it in Philippians chapter 2 verses 9 through 11. Speaking of Jesus and his work on our behalf, Paul says this, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Paul understood that day was coming and we are offered a glimpse of that day. We are offered an actual glimpse of that day in Revelation chapter 7. Please turn there to Revelation chapter 7 verse 9. After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and people and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, 
with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. If you look at this vision of the Apostle John, we catch a glimpse of humanity. They've just survived a great tribulation. The end of the world is at hand. And those who've accepted the free gift of salvation and have persevered are now gathered together. And who is gathered? People from every language and every nation are represented. And, the, and these people who came about because people once sought security and glory for themselves, they were all proclaiming one thing. And what were they proclaiming? Look at verse 10. Salvation belongs to our God and to the Lamb. In translating that, you can very easily say victory. Victory belongs to our God. God has won. God has won. It's the way it's supposed to be. God has saved. And we are simply the recipients of his goodwill and his good actions for us. And we will receive that forever. And look how the vision ends with the litany of things that we will be bestowing on God for eternity. And in the middle of this list, we see thanksgiving. We will be thankful to God for all eternity, forever. So that was a really quick look at biblical history. How should this lead you into thankfulness? Well, again, think about the pattern. Humanity, they reach up and they shake their fists at God. We started in the garden, we did it in Babel, and we continue to do it to this day. We know better than you. We can do it better than you. In fact, we can be better than you. We can save ourselves, and we deserve the glory. And we have all suffered the consequences of separation and isolation. We've been separated from others and from God. But God, in his goodness, reaches down and drew humanity back to himself. He provided a way out of this cursed isolation. And he sent those who believe back out into the nations to bring the good news of what he has done. And he sends us out with his helper and in his power. And one day he's going to draw them all back to himself. He's going to draw you and I back to himself. And he wins. He will get the glory. And we will get the everlasting benefits. Still not driven to thankfulness? We've looked at the history of the world. Well, look at your own life, because really, it's a microcosm of, of the history of the world, isn't it? It really is. At one point, you were shaking your fist at God. I know better than you. I can do it better than you. In fact, I am better than you. I can save myself, and I deserve glory. And you suffer the consequences. Until one day, God reached down, and drew you back to himself. Through the free gift of salvation through Jesus. And you've been brought out of isolation into relationship with, with God. Now you can have right relationships with others. 
and you've been sent out, but you're not alone. And one day you will be with God forever. Forever. Because God won. And he will get the glory. And you will get the benefits of his goodwill and his good actions for you. God wins. He's won the past. He's winning in your present. And you will hail him and celebrate him as victor forever. We have a lot for which to be thankful. A lot. Now, I've had the easy part. I got to spend the last few minutes talking about thankfulness. We offered a definition. We considered why it should matter to you, and we tried to show from Scripture why, why you should be thankful. But you have the challenge now. You need to go out and be doers of the Word. Because I wouldn't be surprised if there's a lot of you right now who, who maybe aren't feeling thankful, thankfulness towards God. I know I don't always feel that. Maybe some of you need to, to look at your lack of thankfulness and ask this qu- question. You need to give yourself a heart check. Am I really in relationship with the living God? Because thankfulness necessitates relationship. Am I really in relationship with the living God? Or have I reduced my faith to information I must master? Maybe some of you need to do an idle check. And you need to ask, am I letting anyone to be more worthy of thanks than God in my life? Is there anyone who I'm more thankful for than God? Maybe some of you need to fight more with thankfulness. Maybe you need to allow it to help you take your eyes off of yourself to take your mind out of the profane and to take your tongue away from coarseness and to take your heart away from anxiety. Maybe some of you just need to consider what exactly you have been given in Christ, the greatest gift in history. And maybe some of you need to look past the gifts and see the giver. Stop being ungrateful. Stop worshiping God for his gifts alone and start worshiping him. Wherever you today with your thankfulness, remember, God wins. He is winning right now in spite of your choices and your circumstances, and for all eternity, he's going to get the glory while you reap the benefits of his goodwill and good action on your behalf. I close with this. Give thanks in all circumstances. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for what you have done. But more than that, we thank you for who you are. We thank you for your good gifts. We thank you for your good will towards us. May we be thankful people as we follow you this week and the rest of our lives. Amen.